So, Mark. Yes? We have many traditions on this show, and last year, I think one of those traditions just fully broke you. I may have hit a breaking point. I think candy-coated Christmas is what did you in. Candy-coated Christmas soured me on the concept for at least a year. Yeah, so actually, we should note, Candy-Coated Christmas maybe now on HBO Max, because that was a Discovery Plus movie. That was the most painful of all of the ones I have watched. So, we will not be covering any made-for-TV Christmas movies this year. We will not be covering the Lindsay Lohan Christmas movie for Netflix. Will I watch that one, though? We will see. That's a, There's a part of me, I was thinking about this yesterday, and I was like, do we, or at least I and like Fiona, need to do a bonus episode on that one? The Lindsay lohan is something I'm intrigued by. So I think we'll, like, wait and see, and and maybe there will be a bonus on the Lindsay Lohan. We're recording this before it was released, so no decisions were made in the scheduling of the episodes. It's October 10th. <laughs> it is indeed October 10th. <laughs> but you're getting married, so we're recording in advance, and as a tribute to you, we are not officially making you watch any made-for-TV Christmas movies this year. And so instead, we're doing a bunch of movies in the month of December that are set at Christmas, explicitly, but are not really about Christmas. So I was wondering, Mark, do you have any favorite movies that are, like, technically Christmas movies, but are not about the spirit of the season? I mean, my favorite is a little movie called It's a Wonderful Life. Great answer. Because that movie is set at Christmas, but is not a Christmas movie. It's also only Christmas for, like, the last 30 minutes. Yeah, I was shocked at how little Christmas was involved in that movie because of my understanding of it. Again, the whole, the Clarence thing, also the seminal moment of the film, about five minutes worth of a two-hour film. Yeah, well, we talked about this when we did our episode on it in 2019. It's, like, a great movie that almost feels like it's a Christmas movie more because it aired on TV every year at Christmas than because of anything that's in it. Yeah, the cable, or I guess not cable, the networks decided it was a Christmas movie, and as such, it became a Christmas movie. The same way that, like, The Wizard of Oz became an Easter movie. There's a little more rationale to this one than The Wizard (laughs) of Oz being an Easter movie. Sure. Because nothing in that movie takes place at Easter or references the resurrection of Christ. Well, we don't know that it's not set at Easter. They just don't say that it's set at Easter. You know, it does end with Dorothy ascending to heaven. (laughs) There was a TikTok of a woman singing somewhere over the rainbow really dramatically, and then someone, like, duetted it and made a voiceover of a gritty live-action Wizard of Oz sequel where Glinda the Good Witch had become a tyrant. (laughs) And then at one point he goes, Scarecrow, you've been crucified! (laughs) It was... He was like, you can't take me down. I'm a Jesus metaphor. Well, for more Oz sequel, see our Return to Oz episode in January. Yes, coming soon. Another creepy Wizard of Oz sequel. But, um, yeah, it's a wonderful life. A great answer. Do you have any other sort of technically Christmas movies? I can't really think of that many that haven't been well-trod ground. I mean, I've never seen Die Hard, so I have no stake in that debate. It's also just like a boring debate because it just comes down to what do you mean by Christmas movie? If Christmas movie is something set at Christmas, then Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Three Days of the Condor is a Christmas movie. If it has to be about Christmas, then it's not. Right. It's just one of the dumbest internet debates. And I think I I probably feel more annoyed by it maybe than you do because 
I work with teenagers, and so every year I have a new batch of teenagers for whom this debate is new, and I'm long past being interested in it. You should get them on the is a hot dog a sandwich debate, because that one I do find interesting. I prefer is cereal soup. Is cereal soup another good one? Because you can't say it's not hot because then gazpacho isn't a soup. But maybe your take is that gazpacho isn't a soup. I have had students make that argument. I have also had students make the argument that cereal is soup and also so is salad if you put dressing on it. That would make it a stew, I would say. Okay. Salad is more close to a cold stew, especially like a potato salad. Interesting. I mean, a potato salad is so thick. Some stews are very thick. I guess it's somewhere between stew and a casserole. That's right. Where where is the line between a stew and a casserole? When does a stew become a casserole? This I, is I a, think, this is a debate you should have your students tackle every year. I think there just has to be some kind of binding agent more in a casserole. Well, you have to add a binding agent to stew. There's going to be a flour or a cornstarch in there somewhere. Yeah, I guess so. So there is a level of thickness where it becomes a casserole. And now I have a mission to determine what it is. Let us know your thoughts on what makes a stew a casserole by tweeting at us with the hashtag stews making dinner, S-T-E-W-S-M-A-K-I-N, no G, dinner. Hashtag stews making dinner to let us know at what point a stew becomes a casserole. I mean, I would say the real point where a stew becomes a casserole is if it's baked in the oven. Well, that's Mark's answer. If you have a different one, tweet at us, hashtag stews making dinner. When does a soup become a stew is another question I've long pondered. I think a stew is is heartier. Right, but how hearty does the soup have to be? I guess it's when the broth is no longer a key player in the game. Yeah. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking <laughs> about some movies that are technically set at Christmas. We're not going to do Die Hard, so both of us will continue not having seen Die Hard. I plan to Die Hard never having seen Die Hard. I will see it at some point. Uh, we'll do Batman Returns. We got some good stuff coming up. And then, you know, there are a lot of other good ones. Basically all Shane Black movies, Lethal Weapon, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Iron Man 3. Iron Man 3 is set at Christmas, huh? Yeah, it starts with Tony Stark giving Pepper Potts a giant stuffed animal. I think that movie's a pretty good use of being, like, technically set at Christmas because it hits the isolation. Like, it's not about Christmas, but it doesn't have nothing to do with being at Christmas the way that this movie does. Right. In the same way that, like, Catch Me If You Can uses its Christmas scenes really well without being a whole movie about Christmas. I think there's also the argument of, could this movie be set at another time of year and still function exactly the same? Because for this movie, the answer is yes. But I think for, like, It's a Wonderful Life or Catch Me If You Can, those are movies that do draw something from the Christmas setting. Right. Like, you couldn't cut the Christmas part out of, it's a wonderful life. And you can't really transpose it to another time of year either. Yeah, because the giving spirit is a big part of it. But this movie, I don't, I could not tell you what the point of having the Christmas music in the background is, because that's the only thing. There's no shopping. There's no use of carolers even to, like, hide from the assassin. It's funny. I think because... Sidney Pollock directed this movie and is in Eyes Wide Shut. I was thinking about, like, the use of Christmas in Eyes Wide Shut and how in that movie it's a tool of the sort of, like, surreal quality of what Tom Cruise is going through. It's the juxtaposition of, like, sort of buttoned-up Christmas family life versus the sex cults he's stumbling into. And this one, it really just does kind of feel like 
the Christmas music is mundanity that he keeps stumbling into, where, like, he's running for his life, and then he'll, like, pop into a store, and they're just, like, playing silver bells over the radio. And I think that's a little more pointed than if you just have generic music, because then it doesn't make as much of an impression. Hmm. Yeah, that is a good point. It does bring it back to, like, reality and out of the world of spy games. But also, you could do that. You could do it with non-Christmas. Yeah, you could. But I I don't know that it would hit as hard. All right. Well, now that we're starting to move into it, should we start the episode and get into three days of the Condor based on the novel Six Days of the Condor? (laughs) One of the funniest credits I've ever seen in my life, because I did not know this movie was based on a book. And when it just goes, based on the novel Six Days of the Condor, you immediately know. They're like, okay, the story's taking place over too long. How can we punch it up? Cut it in half. We're changing the title. It's no longer six days. Now it's three days. Yeah, but you can't do any other number down from six because like four days of the Condor doesn't sound as good. Anyway, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important question facing our world. Should these movies count as Christmas movies? And... Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are any of these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation or if it starts with a kidnapping and is deeply implausible. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, as we've said, we are taking a look at Sidney Pollack's 1975 political thriller, Three Days of the Condor. I enjoyed this movie. Feels like there's more to that. It was weird. (laughs) <laughs> I think the um description I read made it seem a bit more fast-paced than it ended up being. And the whole romance part of it really just threw me for a loop and really took me out of the movie. Me too. The romance is deeply bizarre. And we'll be our whole episode is going to be about this, but the short version is Robert Redford is on the run. He's hiding from the CIA. So he kidnaps Faye Dunaway at gunpoint. Forces her to take him to her apartment so that he can hide out there. When he needs to sleep, he makes her lie in the bed with him so that she can't run off and, like, turn him in. And then he, at one point, like, ties her up and leaves her alone in the apartment for a while. And when he comes back from that, they start making out and having sex and she's just into it. She initiates. Yeah. And, I mean, the only redeeming thing is that it's Robert Radford. So, I mean, that's the thing. Faye Dunaway, in her autobiography, said, I'm sorry. But the idea of being kidnapped and ravaged by Robert Redford was anything but frightening. And, like, talks about how she's like, look, I get that it's it's a weird situation, but it's Robert Redford, so what are you going to do? She's so unglamorous in this compared to almost any other role I've seen her in. Yeah, I mean, the next year she gets her Oscar for Network, and that whole movie, her whole performance is about, like, presentation. Right, but in this, she's just a woman, and she is not Faye Dunaway. I mean, she still looks great. I mean, she still looks great because she's Faye Dunaway, but I mean, the other movies I've seen her in are like Bonnie and Clyde and Chinatown. Sure. And I mean, in Chinatown, she is distraught, but there are moments where she is, you know, in full glam. So I I think I came out pretty similarly to you in that I generally liked this movie. I thought it was a pretty good time. The the romance is is really rough. I mean, this is the kind of movie that we had in mind when we started doing this podcast. Where we're like, a movie where it pretty much all works, but there is this romance that's just baffling. 
I mean, to answer the question that we're investigating, Hollywood romance does not make sense if you are using this movie as a case study. Not at all, but it is kind of refreshing. I feel like we've had a long run of ones where we're like, well, you know, good or bad relationship, I guess this one does kind of check out to just get like a classic, like Hollywood is going to make these people kiss no matter what. (laughs) There's no reason for them to kiss. So Three Days of the Condor, as we said, is based on the novel Six Days of the Condor by James Grady. In the book, it is entirely set in D.C., whereas this movie is mostly set in New York and briefly comes to D.C. a couple of times. Are they ever in D.C.? It's Chevy Chase, Maryland, and Langley. There's the scene where Max von Sydow is chatting like on the Arlington Bridge with the Lincoln Memorial in the background. Right, and the Potomac River is all D.C. territory, yes. so they are in D.C. But it is funny how little they are actually in D.C. Yeah, I kind of was hoping to get more like, 70s DC on screen. Because they specifically say Chevy Chase, Maryland. And it does look like Chevy Chase. Right. And it is not the Chevy Chase in DC. Yeah, I've been starting to build out a list. We got to do a month of just DC on on screen, like, where they're actually shooting in DC. Yeah, I mean, there's probably only a month's worth of material if we're taking things out filmed in Baltimore. Right, there's not a ton of them. So we'll be doing that sometime in 2023 as well. We'll do a month of DC movies. The other big difference in the novel, besides the fact that it takes twice as long, is that in that one, the, like, rogue group within the CIA, the thing that they are doing is, like, they've been secretly using Condor's office as a front to smuggle in Laotian drugs. I mean, that's more realistic than whatever convoluted scheme is happening in this one. Yes. And, like... The rogue group, like, basically someone in Condor's office notices a discrepancy in the numbers and raises the issue. And so then the rogue group decides to take them all out. But yeah, this one, it's like this convoluted plot to, like, to something to get control of oil. Period. A convoluted plot to oil. Right. It's not clear if they're trying to start a war or start a proxy war or just, like, get the deed to an oil field. And the way he solves it is so weird because, what is it? It's like he finds a book that doesn't sell well but is translated into Arabic, Spanish, and Turkish. And somehow he's like, ah, Venezuela and the Middle East, oil. Yeah, you almost would rather, like, I think the the very last moments of the movie where Redford is like, don't you see? I went to the New York Times. It's all going to come out. And Higgins is like, what, what, what makes you think they're going to publish this? I think the movie maybe works better if the reasoning is a little more impenetrable, whereas it kind of acts like it's explained it, but it didn't make sense. Honestly, the thing with these movies, when you try and make a convoluted CIA plot, you're never going to get as convoluted and funny as real CIA plots. No movie could make up MKUltra, and if they did, it would be laughed off screen. And yet, MKUltra, a real thing that happened. I think, like, I mean, the big thing to keep in mind when watch, you know, this is one of that, like, run of 70s political thrillers. The Parallax View is the year before. All the President's Men is the year after. It's just the thing of, like, with Vietnam and then Watergate, there's a real appetite for movies of people standing up to the government and also, like, uncovering all the, like, terrible things the government has been doing. Where, if you think about, like, the noirs of the 40s, those movies have a lot of, like, corruption in local government. Even earlier in the 40s, you think about Daughter of Shanghai and how the corruption there is, like, presented as a betrayal of true American values of welcoming these immigrants. And 
in these 70s movies, the active question is like, are these American values real at all? Because the government is wrapped up in all of this. It's interesting to see a world where political scandal shakes people's confidence in the government on a broad scale. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a period where, like, newspaper revelations had been a big deal with the Pentagon Papers, with the ongoing Watergate investigations. But I think even this movie doesn't have full confidence in that, given that New York Times scene at the end, which I think is one of the most sort of interesting exchanges and a great way to end the movie. It is a very effective ending. Because, like, All the President's Men, a great movie, All the President's Men ends with, I can't remember if it says anything on the screen, but the audience knows Nixon is going down. Yeah, there is you know, a finality to a lot of these political movies from the 70s. So I think that's an interesting thing that this movie is doing, where the movie kind of says, like, this is just going to keep going on. Yeah, there's no ending, and the best case scenario for him is now to become an assassin that lives in Europe. Yeah. I am curious, because isn't there a sequel book? Like, does Condor become a paid killer? Um, There's at least one sequel book. I saw a couple of different references. Uh, I have no idea what happens. Let me see if I can Google that. So the like official like press description of Last Days of the Condor, which was published in 2015, doesn't actually say. It does seem to imply that he is still with the government. Last Days of the Condor, set in the present, like is like a post 9/11 security state novel, which is interesting. But I don't know. It's uh... yeah. It looks like he stuck around, which is weird. Yeah, because I really don't see him being reintegrated into the CIA. I mean, it's hard to imagine them bringing him back in or him going back in. Yeah. It is interesting, you know, talking about post-9-11 stuff, the degree to which the movie, as directed by Pollock, just in its visual language, is so interested in the idea of surveillance. You think about all the times that it goes out of its way to highlight security cameras or to show CCTVs. Or just even the way he films, like, phone booths, where the phone booth takes on this weird dual space of, like, isolation. It's kind of cramped, but also totally exposed. Yeah, and monitored. The implication is that it will be monitored. Yeah, so it's kind of striking to see that surveillance language, which we're really used to in 21st century movies, applied to a pre-digital period. Watching him manipulate the phones was very interesting. Yeah, and I you know the movie starts off with this long sequence of their in-office computer and it's like dot matrix printer reading a book in Chinese characters and spitting out the pre-pinyin romanization alphabet of Chinese. It's a very tactile spy work in a way that's kind of fun. There's some like uh, Tinker Tailor to it all, but more technological even. Yes. Like, it is a movie that is like, we are on the cutting edge of technology here. Uh, which is what's supposed to be scary about it. Yeah. Also, the implication that they're reading, like, every book ever is so funny. Yeah, so, like, that's made up for the book. James Grady, who wrote the novel, claims, and I could not find another source for this, but it's, he claims that after this movie came out and was a big hit, it was the sixth biggest movie of 1975, Uh, Grady claims that the KGB then started setting up book reading offices after this because they assumed the U.S. was doing it. And that then the CIA started doing it because they were like, well, if the KGB is doing it, we should be doing it, too, to make sure that we know what they're getting. How would he know this? That's the thing. That just sounds like a lie. I mean, it sounds plausible, but how would he know? I think it's plausible that, like, someone with CIA, with 
told him this like 20 years later? Yeah, um, maybe, but I would need another source. Yes. It is interesting the degree to which like this movie was a hit. And we talk about this anytime we do an older movie, how just the box office was different before everything was a franchise. But this movie comes in sixth at the box office for 1975. It makes $41 million, a lot of money back then. Ahead of it are Jaws, maybe the beginning of the end. Then One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is number two. Then Shampoo, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Return of the Pink Panther. What a weird list. And we talk about this a little bit with Rain Man, but when you get a movie that's a huge hit, it means like a lot of people are seeing it and a lot of different kinds of people, which you kind of get when it's Avengers Endgame and feels weirder when it's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. (laughs) I mean, Jaws makes sense. Why that would be a big hit for everyone. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest being number two, weird. Yeah. The 70s, what a time. Well, it's this period where the studios, you know, the, the... American government isn't the only institution being questioned. It's We talked about this when we talked about Dr. Doolittle. The studios no longer know how to make a big movie. So they just say, I don't know, here's some money, go make something. And then it's with the blockbusters that come in. It's Jaws and Star Wars and Indiana Jones, where eventually the studios are like, all right, we think we can replicate this. Yeah, I mean, that's much easier to replicate. Hard to do well. Has there been another good shark movie? I mean, Sharknado. I know people who like The Meg, but I have not seen The Meg. I I mean, there has been no shark movie to the quality of Jaws since. No. I saw the IMAX re-release back in September. It was my first time seeing Jaws in a theater. Unbelievable. We as a society have also become less afraid of sharks. Yeah, well, we don't need to be as afraid of sharks. We never needed to be afraid of sharks. But I think that, you know, honestly the general public seems to be more informed on how little danger there is from sharks and more informed on how much danger there's to sharks. Is that a success of Shark Week? I think it's tied to Shark Week. I think it's also tied to the fact that there's more of a, you know, general consciousness of the concept of endangered species since the 70s. Oh, definitely. So it's hard to do scary animal movies that aren't somehow altered yeah i haven't seen beast so i don't know what they did for the idris elba fights a lion movie this year yeah because also people i don't know people like lions after the lion king yeah i don't know i heard that movie's kind of good uh do you know that one of the new housewives of beverly hills is the wife of rob minkoff co-director of the film the lion king no yeah, so Rob Minkoff is a frequent appearer on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. That's so weird. And then I was like, huh, what else has he done? And I looked at his other movies and I said, ah, nothing as good as The Lion King since his first movie. I mean, The Lion King is that weird thing where basically a lot of people at Disney weren't paying a ton of attention to it because they had gotten the Best Picture nomination for Beauty and the Beast. And that was really exciting. And they were like, all right, let's go. And over the course of the 90s, The Disney animation movies get a lot of Oscar attention. They usually get a bunch of song nominations and maybe some other things as well, but they're always shooting for the best picture win. So Jeffrey Katzenberg like does some oversight over Lion King, like talking about the story and stuff like that. But his focus and the studio's focus is on Pocahontas because they're like, how do we elevate from Beauty and the Beast? How do we get like the best picture winner animated movie and get people to take animation seriously and they're like obviously historical epic 
People love historical epics. They love Dances with Wolves. They went for Last of the Mohicans. Like, this is it. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And then, like, because nobody's paying attention to The Lion King, they're just getting to, like, plug away and do their thing. Whereas Pocahontas, you can feel it being noted to death. Yes. I mean, that's for sure. But his, the other movie I recognized that he directed was, like, Mr. Peabody and Sherman. Which we will cover on his podcast one day. Why? Is that DreamWorks? It's a DreamWorks movie. I thought that was Disney. Oh, no. Maybe he did Meet the Robinsons? Or maybe he switched to DreamWorks. Meet the Robinsons is a Disney movie. That's the first, like, real D 3D movie I saw. Um, no, he did Mr. Peabody and Sherman. Oh, wait, no, his second movie was Stuart Little. Yeah, so Rob Minkoff, we've got The Lion King, Stuart Little, Stuart Little 2, The, the Eddie Murphy Mansion. Haunted Mansion. Bad movie. Something called The Forbidden Kingdom with Jackie Chan and Jet Li that I have not heard of. Then Flypaper, Mr. Peabody and Sherman, and then uh, Pause of Fury, The Legend of Hank. A movie I saw in theaters. Did you really? It looked yes, like the worst, uh, the worst possible movie. So here's the thing. It was better than my basement level expectations. I laughed multiple times. Uh, the trailer is just so bad. The trailer is worse than the movie. Okay. You know, I actually had that on our long list of, like, new releases for us to possibly discuss on the show earlier in the year. Because at the time, it was called Blazing Samurai. It is a explicit, credited remake of Blazing Saddles. Is it really? Yes. Fascinating. Where, like, Richard Pryor and Mel Brooks and all that are, like, credited screenwriters. Fascinating. I had no idea. It's weird. Weird. Again, I wouldn't say it's good. No. But it was not as dreadful as I feared. Hmm. So Three Days of the Condor. (laughs) Three Days of the Condor is a 70s conspiracy thriller where Robert Redford works as a CIA analyst in an office whose job is to read every book that comes out. And one day, he goes out for lunch. He's picking up lunch for the office. And because he takes, like, a back door and, like, crawls through a fence to avoid getting caught in the rain... The people surveilling his office do not realize he's gone, and they go in and shoot everybody. He's also known for, like, being late and more of, you know, the office bad boy at the most boring office. Right. He's a bad boy because, like, he rides a bike to work. A motorbike. Yes. It is funny where you're introduced to Robert Redford just riding, like, a fairly dinky motorbike through New York traffic. And then the building they're in, the covers, it's called, like, the American Literary Historical Society or something. Which is actually the American Irish Historical Society. The building? Yeah. And, like, for the most part, all their stuff is, like, actual location shooting. Like, they shot at that place. That's the real, like, backyard of the place. They shot in the World Trade Center, which they're one of, like, the only movies to ever do. Hmm. So he does not get shot. And when he comes back, he finds that everyone's been killed. He, like, tries calling in to the CIA to be like, hey, what do I do? But then gradually he comes to realize that at least some of the people with the CIA were responsible and also want to kill him. So he's on the run trying to avoid the rogue agents in the CIA. And also he doesn't really trust the people who appear to be the normal CIA. Well, yeah, because they kill his friend. Right. So he's trying to uncover this conspiracy. The CIA thinks he might be responsible for it. And he's got to run around for, I don't know, three days and survive. Yeah, because the, like, main giveaway for him where he realizes it's the CIA is that the person who tries to kill him that he shoots then kills his friend who they bring as the like bait for him to trust the CIA. Exactly. 
Uh, the movie won the Edgar Award for Best Screenplay. It's written by David Rayfield, who is like Sidney Pollock's guy he brought in to polish it up, and Lorenzo Semple. Uh, Semple is most famous for writing the pilot, the movie, and the first four episodes of Batman the TV show. Wow. So mystery is kind of his thing. Yes. This feels a little less silly. Yes. Uh, he also wrote The Parallax View, the Dino De Laurentiis King Kong movie, and Sean Connery's Never Say Never Again. Well, this is a Dino De Laurentiis company production. Sure is. And I was like, wasn't he dead? He was not dead. He lived a long time. Yeah, he produced Silence of the Lambs. But he did not produce this movie, which was interesting. No, he was probably busy on prep for King Kong. Yeah, I mean, fair. The movie, as we've said, is directed by Sidney Pollack, who had already worked with Robert Redford on The Way We Were, and he would get his Best Director Oscar for another Redford collaboration out of Africa. We have talked about Pollock before as an actor, because he played the doctor on Death Becomes Her, and in his final role, he played Patrick Dempsey's dad in Maid of Honor. Oh my god. Uh, I just realized I thought Dino De Laurentiis was, I can't remember, but some vague 1920s, like 1910s, 1920s silent film producer, director. I think Mark, that, that's Charlie Chaplin. Uh, well, <laughs> I feel like there's another like Italian guy. Well, Rudy Valentino? Like, who are we talking about? I don't know. I think the name just in my head sounds like that era more than the 60s and 70s through the 80s. See, I just very firmly in my head have that De Laurentiis is the weirdo who controlled the Hannibal Lecter rights. Yeah. I mean, that makes more sense. But doesn't Dino De Laurentiis sound like a cigar-chomping Hollywood executive from 1915? It does, but it also sounds like a weird guy who would insist on making a King Kong remake. Is that one terrible? It at least has a weird reputation. I have not seen that one. I mean, the first King Kong I saw was Peter Jackson's remake. Uh, the first King Kong that I saw was the 1933 one when we did it on the podcast. Yeah, I saw the, the 2005 one in theaters and was very freaked out by the worms. Yeah, I've only seen the original and then I have seen Kong Skull Island and Godzilla vs. Kong. You've seen like the weirdest ones to have seen besides the original. I think it'd be weirder if I'd only seen the 70s one and, like, Skull Island. I'm sure there is at least one, maybe not more, people who have seen that. Yeah. All right, so should we start talking about the ro- the quote-unquote romance of Three Days of the Condor? Look, the movie thinks it is a romance. That is the weirdest part. Yeah. It's, it's very strange. I almost feel like we need to do a different, like, Pollock romance just to, like, <laughs> do it properly. Like, even if we're doing Tootsie, that makes more sense than what we have here. It just is baffling. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we're, we're going to talk about the romance of Three Days of the Condor, a movie where I was fully prepared for it to be one where I was going to have to make stuff up. Like when Robert Redford's coworker comes in and, like, kisses him on the forehead as a greeting. I was like, that's weird enough that I can pass it off as a point. But no, the movie just gave me a weird romance. Well, I mean, I was surprised to see her not included as a point. Well, I got enough out of Kathy. That's fair. Point zero, maybe. They... Okay, there there you go. Point zero. Redford's coworker kisses him on the forehead. No, That's they a weird are thing clearly do. dating. Do you think so? Yeah. When he goes over to Sam's wife's apartment for dinner, she asks where Judith is. And he, he, he is like, oh, she must be working late, just like Sam. So I didn't know this character's name and assumed there was a different person that he was with. No, that's Judith Chong. 
his coworker. Okay, then that is a point then. Yeah, point zero. Robert Redford was dating Judith Chong, and she gets shot up by Max von Sydow and his goons. Yeah, I mean, he definitely treats her body more romantically. Yeah, that's true. Because, I mean, they couldn't do real kissing, because it is an interracial romance, and it is a very 70s depiction in that it's never fully acknowledged as such, but is like, oh, look how progressive we are. It's, like, heavily implied, but could be ignored by people that don't want to see it. Yeah, they're kind of having it both ways there. And it's funny, like, I read it as weirdly intimate for a workplace relationship. I mean, it is weirdly intimate for a workplace relationship. It's not, you know, the most professional relationship to be dating someone at work. Especially when you do, like, clandestine work. Maybe it's better. Like, he's complaining that he can't tell anyone what he does. He can tell her. Right, he can tell his girlfriend. So maybe that's the way to do it. I'm now just confirming that her name is... Jan- J- it's Janice Chong, not okay. Judith. I was closer than I thought, but still yeah. off. Again, she is on screen for two minutes. They maybe say her name once. It's on the door, though. Okay. But yeah, point zero, his girlfriend dies, which honestly adds an even weirder element to the fact that he and Kathy followed love the same day. Sure does. So, point number one, when our guy Condor, what's his name, Turner? Yeah. Joe, I think. Joe Turner. Yeah, they changed his name from the book. His book is like Malcolm something in there. So he's on the run. He's watched his friend get gunned down. He knows the CIA can't be trusted because he doesn't know who's in the conspiracy and who's not. So he ducks into what's like a thrift store or something. And that's where we first meet Kathy, played by Faye Dunaway. Who is, I think, selling her clothes to buy cross-country skis. Yeah, she's going on a skiing trip with her boyfriend. He's already off there. They're going to go cross-country skiing together. That's kind of their deal. Yeah, that's all we know about him. And we hear his voice once. But we'll get to that later. Right now, we just know she is in a relationship. Point two. (laughs) Point two! So, Kathy leaves the store. Condor sneaks out after her. And then kidnaps her at gunpoint. This is going to be important as we talk about the romance. The fact that he sticks a gun into her stomach and basically says, take me into the car with you. Yeah. And he call- he hears her name, so he calls out like, oh, Kathy, it's good to see you. Click. Right. Take me into your car. Don't scream. And then he's like, where do you live? She lives in Brooklyn. He goes, okay, drive to your apartment. He asks, do you have any roommates? And she's like, yeah, I have, I have this friend. He goes, no, you don't. He's right. She doesn't have a roommate. So now, like... The threat of violence, of physical violence, and of sexual violence is very real here. Yes. And he he does find a man's shirt in her apartment. And that's how he figures out about the guy in Vermont. Right. And, like, Faye Dunaway is very clearly playing it as someone who understands the, like, varied threats that she is facing. Yes. And I think she's giving a good performance at this point as someone who is kidnapped and afraid. You're not entitled to personal questions. That gun gives you the right to rough me up. It doesn't give you the right to ask me. I'll rough you up. Have I roughed you up? Yes. What are you doing in my house? Going through all my stuff. Have I raped you? The night is young. Yeah, I think she's very good here. And and it's kind of chilling at times. Like, there's this scene where he's exhausted because he's been on the run. And he needs to take a nap. And he makes her lie in the bed with him with the gun still stuck into her stomach. So that if she tries to get up and, like, call the cops he'll be able to put a stop to her. Like, that is a horrifying situation. But as the audience, you know, we, like, understand why it's happening. 
we understand why he's doing it. I am still horrified on her behalf as it's yes. going on. Oh, entirely. And I feel so bad for Kathy. Yeah. Later on, her phone goes off and Condor makes her answer the phone. And it's her boyfriend who's calling to be like, why aren't you here yet? And the gun is pointed at her as she's tearfully being like, oh, yeah, like, I got tied up. I get my car broke down. I guess I'll be up there tomorrow. Which, and her boyfriend is a huge jerk to her. Based on seeing the car is entirely believable that her car just would stop working. Yeah, her car's a disaster. But the boyfriend is just like, Kathy, this is what it's always like with you. Your car is always breaking down, which, fair. <laughs> and he's like, Kathy, you're not here already. This is just like, clearly, you never care about this stuff. He clearly has a lot of resentment against her. I mean, it, this is also, like, tied to the fact that she only takes lonely pictures. Because she's a photographer, so she genuinely might be weird in this relationship but still yes. no excuse for how he talks to her yeah it seems like a pretty unpleasant relationship yeah i'm i wouldn't be upset if they broke up but these are bad conditions under which to break up so she is clearly under a lot of stress she is again a prisoner in her own home there's a point where redford tries to convince her that like look i've told you my whole deal oh yeah when he he explains this whole conspiracy. And he's like, don't worry, I work for the CIA. Here's my ID. And his ID is for some made-up company. And he's like, yeah, that company doesn't exist. I can prove it to you. He throws her the phone book. He's like, look up my company's phone number. She's like, okay, got it. And then he goes, look up the CIA's phone number. <laughs> and she goes, what, the CIA's in the phone book? He says, yeah. She looks it up. The CIA has the same phone number. An insane thing to be true and to use as proof in a movie. Yeah, I mean, like, I understand the CIA's headquarters being listed in the phone book. I don't think an agent should have that phone number on their card. The CIA could have more than one phone number. Right. Why also does the CIA have that phone number and this made-up company as the same number? Why are they both listed that way in the phone book? You would think they would be better than this. You would think. Let's find out what the CIA's phone number is. IMDb facts are often worthless because there's a mix of, like, stuff that people pulled from DVD commentaries, which is fine. And then also just, like, random observations, like... Sidney Pollack directed this movie. He also appears in Eyes Wide Shut, another movie about a man running around. <laughs> like, a lot of IMDb facts are like that. But there is one on the IMDb page for Three Days of the Condor that's like, Robert Redford must have been required to stick to the script because he seems like he's straining when he explains the phone book evidence. <laughs> I'm like, that is not an IMDb fact. I uh, love IMDb facts, though. Uh... I think this basically takes us to point three after the phone call. It is not long after he forces her to make a phone call to her boyfriend that we get to point three. The other key is that he decides he needs to go out at one point. He wants to see his now dead friend's wife to like check in what she knows and, and make sure she's okay. And when he leaves to make sure again that she can't call the police on him, he ties her to the toilet and oh, gags right. her. I kind of forgot that was after the phone call. Yeah, this is a guy who has pointed a gun at her, kidnapped her, invaded her home, made her lie in bed with him while he slept. There's the one point where he's trying to convince her, like, see, I'm a good guy. I'm a victim of this conspiracy. And she's like, I maybe believe you. And he's like, I'm not a bad guy. Like, I haven't hurt you. He says, I haven't raped you. And she pointedly and accurately says, like, yet. The night's not over. Yeah. And that's one of those moments where I feel like Faye Dunaway is very much playing the horror for her character of this situation where like she is aware of what could and very well might happen 
And yet. <laughs> and yet. When Redford comes back, she is still there, bound and gagged to the toilet. He frees her, appreciates her art. Yes, her lonely photography. And he starts talking to her about her art. She's saying, like, yeah, I have this art that I don't show anybody because it doesn't feel like it's mine. Sometimes I take a picture that isn't like me, but I took it so it is like me. It has to be. I put those pictures away. I'd like to see those pictures. We don't know each other that well. Do you know anybody that well? I don't think I want to know you very well. I don't think you're going to live much longer. And Redford's like, yeah, you don't actually really want to be with your annoying boyfriend. You want to be with someone who's not going to live much longer. Dark and probably accurate. Kathy does not seem well. And then he's like untying her gag and her, you know, the ropes around her. And then she starts, she starts pulling him to her. It's bad news. (laughs) She is clearly framed as the one initiating this. And they start making out, and then they have sex. It's really interesting. It is like weird the way the sex is shot. Sex scene because all it is is them kissing shirtless, then shots of her art back to them kissing shirtless, more shots of her art, and that goes on for a little while. I think it's kind of cool in how it manages to be acceptable for the seventies, but also the way that it gets at the intimacy of it is there are the shots of them shirtless kissing, but there are also a bunch of shots of just like a hand grabbing skin. It's like very tactile. It's like fleshy in a way that movie sex is often very sterile. And yet let's remember how the sex started. <laughs> right. This, this cannot be consensual. And yet the movie makes her initiate it. But even watching that, I'm like, is is she doing this because she thinks it'll lower the chances that she gets shot? I mean, I don't even know if the movie thought that hard about it. No, I think the movie thought that, like, she's taken in by Robert Redford because he's hot and he seems morally righteous. Yeah. But, like, you just you just watch this scene and you're like, no, no. She's a prisoner in her own home. It's bad news. And then this brings us to point four after they have sex, where she just, like, is now assisting him in solving this grand conspiracy. Yeah, which I'm also going to say, haven't read the book, it does feel slightly more plausible when it's six days of the Condor. Yeah. Also, I, like, skimmed the summary, and so I looked, and it makes a lot more sense in the book why he chooses the person. So yeah. he kidnaps a paralegal named Wendy Ross, whom he overhears saying she will spend her coming vacation days holed up in her apartment. Knowing no one will notice her absent, Malcolm enlists her aid in finding out more about the forces after him. That does make more sense. She's also shot, which Faye Dunaway is not, so that's good. Yeah. But then, so like the next morning, he tells her, I need your help. And her response is, have I ever denied you anything? Creepy. Weird. And, like, she is now, like, his support. She's like, yeah, when things quiet down, you're really a very nice man to be with. And I'm like, he kidnapped you at gunpoint. <laughs> it has been, at most, three days. It hasn't been three days. This is day two. This is day two. It's been, like, 
12 hours of the condor for her. My God. But she's just like, good to go. He apparently was talking about Janice in his sleep because, again, his girlfriend died yesterday. That morning. But then he gets her to, like, break into the CIA for him. Yeah, well, when he says, like, I'm going to need your help with stuff, she says, you can always depend on the old spy f***er. Dark. Yeah. And, yeah, she she goes into the World Trade Center where there's a, a giant CIA headquarters. Which I think was true. Yeah, but it was a secret at the time. Okay, yeah. Not, I guess, a place you could just walk in for a job application. Yeah, that became public knowledge after 9-11. So how did they know? For this movie, I think they just thought it was a cool location and they were right. Oh my god, that's pretty wild. So, yeah, she is now just, like, helping him spy on the CIA and collecting information because they're not looking for her, they're looking for him, so he can, like, stay in hiding. And she's just his assistant! Yeah, I mean, she helps him get the phone access by doing this, right? Like, that's right. her that's her job. And, like, tracking phone numbers is a big part of how he uncovers the plot. Yeah, and he was in the, like, Army Signal Corps. So he knows how to, like, manipulate switchboards and yeah. stuff like that. That's the explanation for why he is only good at that sort of spy craft. There was a moment where I thought the movie was going to kind of pull the rug out from under us and be like, actually, he is the bad guy when there are all the discussions of, like, well, how is he so good with a handgun? I thought it would have been like, a kind of cool Manchurian candidate sort of thing. But it's no, it's just a lucky shot. Which Jobert figures out, almost. He's like, the reason this man is so hard to track down is because we are used to tracking people that know what they're doing. And this dude's just an analyst. Yeah. Um. So she's helping him out, and that takes us to point number five, where he's going to drive down to Chevy Chase and confront the head of this conspiracy to use the CIA as an avenue for oil? Just oil. They're gonna gain territory? This whole damn thing was about oil. Wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yes, it was. They're gonna get oil because the CIA thinks that world starvation is around the corner. Which is like very 70s. The the fear of energy shortages and food shortages and the whole argument is like, when that comes... The American people aren't going to care about what's right. They're just going to want stuff for themselves. Yeah. There's no way that deputy director salary paid for that house. Maybe his wife is, like, fancy. It's the only explanation. Let's find out what pay band a deputy director of the CIA is. Because that has to be public knowledge, right? You would think so. Okay. On Glassdoor, uh, about 141 per year. 141000 that's less than I would have guessed. It is even less than I would have guessed. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, so his wife must be rich. Yeah, his wife is rich. He's living in uh, Chevy Chase. And before Condor goes down to confront this dude, he has to say goodbye to Faye Dunaway. And she basically is like, yeah, I hope that uh, one day I'm able to show you those photos that I don't show anybody, but I don't think I'm going to be able to show them to you. But she's pretty explicit. Like, I think you're going to die. You have a lot of very fine qualities. But... What fine qualities? You have good eyes. Not kind, but... They don't lie. And they don't look away much. And they don't miss anything. I could use eyes like that. 
you're overdue in Vermont. And so I think that she is right. Yeah, and she starts talking about, like, yeah, like, it'd be nice see you again. You have many fine qualities. She, like, waxes poetic about his great eyes. I like it when Condor asks, like, hey, what about your boyfriend with all this? And she just goes, he'll understand. I mean, they should break up regardless. Yeah, it's a bad relationship. Uh, she seems kind of uninterested. He seems to resent her. Um, yeah, so after they say goodbye, then the movie ends with the whole, like, revealing of the conspiracy. But Will, I think we've made it pretty clear. Do you find the romance of Three Days of the Condor believable? No! No. It's just, I mean, I, like... I don't even know what to say that we haven't said already. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, where would you rate this? Um, uh, I I don't even know. <laughs> is this a zero? The only reason this- Is it a is, 1 because it's Robert Redford? The only reason this isn't a zero for me is I believe he and Janice would date. Oh, sure. So, because of point zero, I'm giving this a 1. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, it's such a weird romance. <laughs> yeah. But again, they're the only people that they can share their jobs with. So they're both attractive, like he and Janice. So I get why they would date. And so I can't say that the entire romance is unbelievable. Yeah. But even with Robert Redford, I don't think she would initiate right after being tied and gagged to the toilet. And like left alone in her apartment for probably at least an hour. A while, yeah. And he like made her lie in the bed with him. At gunpoint, I guess a one, yeah. Do you think that either of them are dateable? I mean, I think Condor probably was before this movie started. Yeah. Faye Dunaway, no. Kathy, no. No, I don't want to date Kathy. She's a weirdo, and I don't think that you would have, like, a pleasant relationship. I think Kathy needs to see an analyst. Yeah. Um. Do I think these characters would stay together? I don't think they're going to find each other. Yeah. Do you think Condor is going to live much longer? If Condor lives much longer, it's because he becomes Max Sydow's partner in Yeah, murder. it's just like, it's just hard to imagine him going on much longer. Like, I assume the CIA will somehow get the New York Times to bury that story, in part because it is confusing, and I doubt Redford had much hard evidence. Right. And yeah, I just assume they're going to, like, take him out in a park one day. It's not going to be that hard, I don't think. Mark, if you did have to pick one person in the movie to date, whom would you choose? I mean, it's obviously Janice. She's like a computer whiz that works a machine that reads books and is cool and hot and wears good glasses. Can't argue with that. All right, it's Janice. (laughs) Okay, Will, should there be a Three Days of the Condor musical? I mean, obviously no. 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 It's funny to think about for two seconds. (laughs) It would be funny to think about. But it wouldn't be worth seeing a two-hour musical of this movie. There's no genre of musical theater that's not funny to think about this being like Andrew Lloyd Webber's Three Days of the Condor. Funny. Like Stephen Sondheim's Three Days of the Condor. Same era as Company. Funny. Funny. But also, same era as Last of Sheila. Like, he wrote his own mystery movie in this period. Yeah. But again, no. Jason Robert Brown's Three Days of the Condor. Funny. I would watch Julie Taymor directing Three Days of the Condor on stage. Is she the one that directed Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark? And The Lion King. And The Lion King. Uh, all right. So that's a no. I think that's it for Three Days of the Condor. Next week, we are covering another classic movie that's set at Christmas. The Best Picture winner, The Apartment. A movie 
that is different than the room, which is different sure than is. room, and I don't know anything else about it. Uh, it's one of the great romantic comedies, but it's an early one. It's from 1960, and it's it's our guys uh, Shirley MacLaine and Jack Lemmon. I am now excited. I really yeah. had not even heard of this movie before you put it on the schedule. It's going to be a good time. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. Last question, Will. What's the best piece of dating advice we got from three days of the Condor? You should be with someone that you feel you can talk about your life with. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I generally don't condone in-office relationships, but maybe Bad. if you're a spy... And they're the only person you can share your, like, actual life with. Maybe it's okay. I assume that, like, intelligence agencies have policies about people dating each other. I assume those policies are different for analysts than they are for field agents. But I would be fascinated to know what those rules are. I don't know if those would be public knowledge. I mean, fair. (laughs) I would love to read the CIA's HR handbook. What you're saying is you want to see a Netflix Christmas rom-com set at the CIA. I don't not want to see that. I think it would be very funny. It would be bad, but it would be funny. I mean, what's there was a USA show that was like, I want to say a blind CIA handler who falls in love with his agent. I mean, that is hilarious. I think that's what it was. But there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. Bye.